Welcome back, friends, to another episode of Liminal Frames. I'm your host, Nathan, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host, Darren King, also known as Exo Academian. Good to be back in the podcast chair. Darren, it's been a couple of weeks. I know you and I both have uh, been battling the bugs that have been kind of going around our communities, and we've come out on the other side of that now, thankfully. But it's really great to get behind the microphone and catch up and get into some current events and what's unfolding at the beginning of 2024. But before we do that, how have you been? How are things in your, literally, your neck of the woods? My neck of the woods, indeed. I'm doing well, thanks, and happy to have some slightly warmer weather. We had a cold snap there for a while, and I always am sympathetic to people who live in truly northern climes and have to deal with this for months on end. It was warm enough that I could walk around in a t-shirt today, even last night, in the woods, which I really enjoy. And yeah, I'm happy to be back at it as well. There's been no shortage of things that have happened since we last recorded an episode a few weeks ago. And I think people have been rearing to hear us take it all apart, parse it out, and see where things are going. And also, we have some other things to talk about in terms of how new people to the topic, and we know because this is gaining traction weekly, there are more and more new people coming in. And depending on which track they sort of attach to when they come in, they could have very different ideas about what's going on and overarchingly whether it's good news or bad news for humankind. So we're going to get into that too, because I think that is woefully under-discussed in our community. That's right. New year, new people coming into this topic and new perspectives being adopted. I think we're even seeing some jockeying, if I you know, could be frank with you, I think we're seeing some jockeying of the talking heads for being you know, sort of the leading thinkers in this particular space and, and they're putting forward their best argument for what they think it might be. Uh, in some respects, this is really great. I look at the, that positively. We've got a lot of different folks with fairly well-formulated thoughts about what this might be and, and they've been working on those ideas for some time now. Uh, the community itself has been incubating the ideas too for the last several years. And so we're seeing some mature concepts being put forth. But as you and I both know, and our listeners certainly know, that once you get into this topic, it it really starts out in one place, and then you, you go on a journey that sometimes doesn't really stop. You kind of keep jumping from one pad to the next and thinking, oh, now, now this must be it. I'm on this pad, and I look back, and I, I don't think it's that anymore. Uh, so you know, I, f I find it interesting to observe that. And now that I've been doing this for some time and to observe things like the Congress people who are really getting into this subject, you can tell they're thinking about it. I think even Eric Burleson has uh, tweeted or posted several times about how he's thinking about UFOs late at night and he's still thinking about them. I think that's really funny because we've all, you and I, we've all been there thinking about this subject in the wee hours of the evening. And that, that's where he's at right now in his journey. So that is exciting to see. Uh, but as we all know, there's a lot of content and uh, ideas to, to grok. And it takes a lot of time to really figure that out. And, and I don't think anyone has the corner on the market. So we're going to get into a lot of those different perspectives on the show today and uh, kind of parse through that and, and get, get our folks thinking about, too, along those lines. I, I would hope that in 2024, our listeners and 
and ourselves included, will have opportunities to introduce this subject to people who don't know anything about it and who may find out that we have an interest or a show and may want our take on whatever this might be. And it gives us time to think about, well, where would I begin in introducing them to the subject? Do I want to toss them into the deep end right away? Do I want to gradually ease them into to the material? What's the best way to do that so that it has the, I think, um, most positive outcome? Uh, and we can t- debate what that might look like as well. What What is a positive outcome? What is the best uh, sort of perspective, macro perspective to hold as one is trying to digest all this information in this rapidly changing uh, field of interest. Indeed. And I was thinking about what you're talking there about these different Congress people now waxing philosophic about their opinions after they've had, say, three or four late nights trying to make sense of this whole thing. And I think the challenge there is that they again are going to assume that they're in a privileged position to know what's going on because they're hearing partially classified information. But one of the things that's come out from Grush and others is that much of the information in the lore over the decades is accurate, that there are key elements out there already. And so in many ways, I still think the community that's really well-versed in this is still much further ahead than some of these Congress people, even though they are hearing some classified details. And I was thinking about the analogy of they're sort of like first-year med students, and they're getting asked to say, what, what do you think the disease is? You know, what's the problem with this patient? And they're not afraid to give their opinion, even though there's more they don't know than they do know as first-year students. So you have people asking, even people from within our community asking these Congress people, what do you think it is? Well, I think it's interdimensional. What does that mean? We can get into that. But again, what's funny is these are people that are like a few months in some of them trying to give these overarching conclusive statements about this incredibly complex topic, which as you just alluded to, is the rabbit hole of rabbit holes. And you could be years in and feel like you're further from the truth than when you began because it begins to unravel everything, which also speaks to this entire question about what is entailed in disclosure and just how disruptive might that be. Certainly. And I'm, I'm excited to get into this subject because there are so many different perspectives to uh, to discuss. Before we get there, though, I've enjoyed our uh, segments where we've really caught up on the latest comings and goings in the in the news cycle uh, with various different articles or, or talking points. There's been a lot of content since the last time that we spoke. And uh, I was surprised as we were going through that list. I was like, oh, man, yeah, we haven't actually touched on you know, this, that, or the other since since that material came out. Um, so there's quite a few pieces of information and uh, news bites that have happened, and I would love to get your take and love to get into conversation about them. The first one that I think was really impactful for the community and got a lot of attention was this uh, article written by uh, Bernardo Castro about his perspective on what this might all be. That article is titled UAPs and non-human intelligence, what is the most reasonable scenario? A great deal of attention. I think it got republished on the Debrief website as well. Uh, And it's good to me to see Bernardo wading into this conversation more actively, although I know, as as you know, he's been interested in this for quite some time, but maybe has been a little bit hesitant to get out there and, and, and talk about what he really thinks. Uh, this article, I think, was very well received by the community and may have, in fact, been the first 
introduction that many people had to uh, the, the thoughts of Bernardo Castro, uh, which is great. There's a lot of content. Obviously, we're huge fans of his work, and we find it to be very um, meaningful and and, uh, and a good guide for kind of what this might be. But those of us who have studied his sort of philosophical perspective more closely, I think had some, uh, I would say, head-scratching moments when reading the article. And so maybe we can talk a little bit about those. But before we kind of get into the weeds, uh, how did you feel about the article? What were your kind of initial takes on it? And, and what's your perception in terms of how it has been received by the community? Well, the first thing I'd say in regards to that last part of the question there in terms of how it's been received, like you mentioned, it's been received very well. It got a lot of press, so to speak. I think a lot of that comes down to kind of a hero worship that tends to happen and to some degree an inferiority complex that those in the UFO community suffer from a little bit, where if you get a big name like a world-class, world-renowned philosopher chiming in, a lot of people just feel validated by seeing that happen at all. And I think, though, that can also lead to someone coming in on that kind of platform, getting away with some cheap shots and getting away with some maybe not really thorough thinking. And that's what surprised me about this article. I found it fascinating that he was exploring this particular side of things, namely this notion that there could have been a kind of non-human intelligence native to the earth long before Homo sapiens sapiens kind of rose to the floor and that because of plate tectonics swallowing up previous civilization structures and whatnot, that could have happened 350 million years ago or something, and we would see no evidence of their civilization, but they may have survived and might be in subterranean kind of cavities now or something. And he also, in that article, was pretty outspoken about what he thought it wasn't. He thought it was not aliens from Alpha Centauri, he was clear that he does not think the extraterrestrial hypothesis is tenable here. He basically said that he thinks there's a remarkable lack of clarity and critical thinking amongst ufology, and he thinks a lot of the storytelling is lacking in credible argument. Again, I would point to Dave Rush there and say that's not what seems to be coming forward, though. What seems to be coming forward is that a lot of the lore has proven to be true. And you get kind of this weird circular reasoning here because some of the skeptics and the cynics, even the debunkers, even the professional debunkers who are trying to shut this down, will say, look, it just looks like all these guys have been reading a bunch of old sci-fi magazines and have put it together and formed this ridiculous level of cultural history around this topic. When no, it's the other way around, that the reason why that has existed in the lore is because it has leaked out. And as we've talked about before on this podcast, Part of the enterprise has always involved leaking truth in the midst of some falsehoods so as to confuse people, but also to establish some plausible deniability while you actually are seeding our civilization with some of the ideas that speak to the actual reality underlyingly. So for someone like Bernardo to basically begin from a point where he's excusing all of that other data and saying he will not consider that. He will take one very narrow range of data that he considers authentic and legitimate and start from there. And that's what led me to post on social media saying that our starting points make a huge difference in where we end up. And while I respect Bernardo and consider him a friend, I don't have the same starting points as he does. I think as I've pointed out before, channeled material, for instance, is one of our 
greatest sources of information. Even government agencies used channeled material to make contact with ETs or interdimensionals, whatever you want to call them, NHIs. And in one famous case, they even were channeling through this woman and getting information, and they asked them to show a visible sign of their presence, and they looked out the window, and sure enough, there was a craft up in the sky right at the time they asked for it. So again, you have this direct crossover between mediums of contact that are not conventional, but can show up as technological craft in our apparently 3D world. So I think it's a mistake to exclude all of that data. I think we have to include as much as we can, like in a generous way, actually, and generate from there and see where we end up. But what was your thoughts when you first came across that article, other than the fact that it was head-scratching to you? I, obviously, it's very well written. And he, in my opinion, condensed a lot of the thinking around this phenomena into some very uh, digestible, coherent, cogent arguments. Uh, you know, I've certainly I've been interested in this Silurian hypothesis, which for those of you who aren't familiar with that hypothesis is that the earth is really old. It's billions of years old. And because it's so old, there is ample time within its history for uh, different life forms to have developed and to have advanced into, you know, advanced civilizations, built civilizations with technology, et cetera. But because it's so old, because the universe is a dangerous place, uh, that means that things have happened in that time frame. You know, we've had cataclysms, we've had uh, impacts from uh, meteors and things of that nat nature that have essentially reset some of these uh, potentially ancient civilizations. And we have some maybe hints of that evidence in our you know, geologic record or our past. And it's plausible that that these UFOs or these phenomena that we experience now may be the remnants of these ancient uh, civilization or civilizations in the, in the Earth's history. So I think I thought he did a good job explaining uh, that, that perspective and offering that as a almost kind of an Occam's razor solution to the situation uh, you know, ignoring this, for all the reasons that everybody is familiar, ignoring this ET hypothesis because it's, you know, these bodies are so far away in space and et cetera, et cetera, why they, you know, it wouldn't be ET. But all that said, um, I found it to be a little bit strange because it, he was, in my mind, signaling so much to traditional academic ways of thinking and even or frankly, like materialist, uh, physicalist materialist thinking about the issue. And for someone who is one of the leading thinkers in, in an idealist perspective, I found that to be a little bit weird and hard to reconcile the, the those two uh, points of view. One sentence that really, I think, got me with at the early part of the article, and I'll read it here, is that he said, in my view, a significant portion of the published material could benefit from greater rigor, empirical grounding, theoretical clarity, and logical reasoning. This field often appears to diverge from the standards of intellectual precision and level-headed analysis that hold in academia. Okay, I understand kind of where he's coming from there to a certain degree, but to your point, if the phenomena doesn't adhere to the paradigm of the, the materialist model, if, if the tools of our academic sciences and study aren't well equipped for us to understand what, what this is, then how do we draw these lines? What, what do we consider to be 
you know, properly rigorous or uh, what is empirically grounded material. And I think this is the challenge in front of us, right? And we've talked about this, like we've done an episode about it, that it's difficult for those who are our greatest thinkers in our world today to kind of take the ways of thinking that they have been trained in and apply it to this subject because the subject doesn't necessarily adhere to those rules or, or fall within the paradigm, uh, the, uh, you know, the epistemological paradigm that these rules follow. So I think it's going to end up resulting in some challenges, you know, for, for all of us, quite frankly, I think we're going to see some evolution of his perspective as time goes on, uh, that we won't, this won't be the last we've heard of him and he'll continue to provide some really valuable, uh, feedback and analysis on all of this. But, uh, I, I, I'm upset a little bit that it didn't consider some other hypotheses that might be equally valid, um, you know, just because in his mind they might be a little bit more outlandish. Uh, so, you know, right away we're taking kind of a, uh, a scalpel to the possibility space, and I don't know that that is necessarily fair. For sure, and I think also there was no making sense of, for instance, experiencer literature and adductee literature and that kind of thing just excluding it outright. And then another thing that you and I talked about before we started recording was that he made the point that there's no way, no reason why a non-human intelligence from a different planet would even be able to communicate with us, would even think in the same sort of logical axioms as, as we follow. And yet what's ironic about that is that when he had a conversation with me, he said there was a pretty good body of evidence supporting the notion that we are seated species by some other more ancient civilization. And of course, we think then about shamanistic history and religious history and how often we see comments about human beings being made in the image of their creators. So that again speaks to this notion that part of the reason why there may be the possibility of cross-communication and even a similarity in form, a template kind of thing that is used across the cosmos is because some ancient civilization actually carried out this ancient seeding program. This is spoken to in the raw material. And even when you think about someone like Carl Jung talking about the collective unconscious and how even certain forms are populated into the collective unconscious, well, according to the raw material, when you have a certain wing of the galaxy that gets developed, there are certain templates that take precedence there. And you see those kind of templates repeating across different planets and across different solar systems. So again, we have this as part of our lore to match with the fact that it seems to be evidenced in the literature itself, that people are running into beings that look a lot like standard human beings, even though they don't seem to be from here per se. So again, it's very interesting to me how much he excluded. And on top of that, as we pointed out before we started recording, according to Bernardo's very own model, we are like disassociated alters of original mind. So in that sense, we are a copy, if you will, that's following its own sort of history and trajectory of that original mind, a fragment, if you will, a, a holographic fragment of original source consciousness. So in that sense, that's why there would be the ability for telepathic communication and this really deep sense of knowing because we ultimately come from the same source. So that's part of his own model. So to exclude and almost make fun of the notion that there's no way we could talk to these beings if they're really from Alpha Centauri is kind of head scratching, like you say. 
And the last thing I'd like to say here is that I, I find some people have this peculiar notion that if I like a particular thinker for one particular idea or series of ideas they've developed, they assume I sign off on everything they believe. For instance, you know, people have talked about free will and having questions about that, and I don't like Bernardo's take on that. And they said to me, how can you follow this guy when he says this about free will? And that's why I sort of come back and say, well, first of all, just because I like much of Bernardo's model, and I think he's done an amazing job of deconstructing physicalism and really putting us on the course of something much more closer to reality and much more interesting and much more able to dignify human experience and that kind of thing. But that doesn't mean I accept everything he says. And on top of that, I think in this particular essay, some of his biases, some of his unacknowledged, unrecognized biases come forward. And it's just a good reminder to all of us to try to stay in conversation, try to catch ourselves when we are letting bias come forward. And we'll all be the better if we can do that. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm eager for an analysis of the experiencer uh, accounts of the phenomena to be brought into this conversation. And, and it may, quite frankly, that may be the last part to come into the conversation when this unfolds publicly. But if you think about what it is that we might know or be able to learn the most about what it is, we should be talking to the people who've had direct experience with it. Even if, and I think we can all acknowledge this, even if we observe at the surface level of those experiences, they may not have a lot in common. That the, There's an interpretive layer that we have to get through to understand the, the common elements between these two different experiences. And also, we have to avoid the temptation. We've talked about this a good, a good, good deal, the, the temptation of flattening whatever it is into one particular category as if it's just uh, one source of the phenomena. There may be multiple actors at work here. Uh, I did want to read a quote that he has in, in the article, and then I know we want to move on to some other sound bites. but this was about uh, he ta him talking about these two different elements, the, the nuts and bolts, the, the UFO craft, and the fact that they show up in radar signatures, et cetera. They're clearly real objects, but then also this high strangeness component. So he says, I'm not dismissive of this high strangeness class of observations, as a matter of fact, I've written an entire book, meaning in absurdity, in which I tried to account for it. I believe these visions are real as such. They are part of a natural feedback mechanism intrinsic to the human mind, which seeks to dislodge it from ossified worldviews that, despite having become stable, no longer serve the advancement of our understanding of ourselves and nature. The visions in question emerge from collective phylogenetically ancient layers of the human mind shared by all of us, which, for being incapable of language and conceptual reasoning, communicate to the executive ego through dreamlike, immersive metaphors. They should be taken seriously, just not literally. So I understand where he's coming from there, uh, but I would also contend that in some instances, people have literal experiences with these beings and and they've told us about that. And not all of this is happening at a kind of so, sort of a subconscious, uh, you know, dreamlike uh, metaphorical layer of, of human cognition, that some of this has literally happened in real space, just like the UFO object tracked on radar is a real object in the air. Absolutely. It's the quasi-physical nature that is so perplexing to people because it seems to be 
both physical and not, and sometimes is and sometimes not. I was talking to friends of mine who have had experiences where on the one hand, sometimes their bodies were taken from their bed when they were abducted. Other times their body stayed there and just their consciousness was taken. There's times where I've talked about cases where someone is on board a craft, a young teenage couple, and this being exits its physical body and then sort of calls forth this young man's essential nature, actually, apart from his physical body, and they kind of have this dancing of light amongst them, and he experiences sort of ecstatic experience of oneness. And this is also, though, involving a case where they drive their car up and get on board a UFO craft and go flying through the cosmos kind of thing. So all of the above is involved there. So this is the thing. People would like to, especially, for instance, sociologists, certain wings of academia, and the social sciences would like to keep this in the kind of imaginal realm that you're kind of describing there. But it's one thing if you have symbolic kind of archetypal kind of elements, sure, fair enough. I talked about that recently in a podcast I did on the overlap with shamanism, which is a remarkable overlap. But they'll come back from these imaginal realms with implants or with like scoop marks out of their body, right? Or having capacities, like literal capacities. I also talked about that in that shamanic episode where they can tell the future. They have precognitive dreams. These are not just archetypal notions that come to them when they're sleeping. They literally will see a plane that crashes that sure enough, seven days later, that happens. So this again is unwrapping our notions of what reality is. So to try to slot it in somewhere is, I think, foolhardy. I think the question we should be asking, the adventure we should be embracing is the fact that this is so much undoing what we have assumed to be the case and these clean categories we have existed under up until now. So really, again, I, I'm i with you on this, the sense that it's kind of head-scratching that Bernardo went the direction he did. Again, I think it speaks largely to bias that he just doesn't like some of these stories. But again, what's interesting about that is any other kind of body of evidence in a court of law, this would be taken seriously. If you had tens of thousands of people from different cross-sections of society across different cultural backgrounds reporting very similar events, especially even before the internet era that was happening. You have to make sense of that. And again, it's not enough to say, well, that's just the collective unconscious when they're having scoop marks and implants and people are noticing them not in their beds and things like that. There's grass on the carpet because they clearly came in in the middle of the night. I could go on and on. But this is data we have to reckon with. We can't just ignore it because it's inconvenient. Exactly. Uh, so, yeah. Great article. I'm incredibly grateful that he published it and the, it got the attention that it did. I think it was well-deserved and well-received. I think it's gotten pe got people thinking a little bit harder uh, in a, in, to use some of his words, in a, in a more structured and logical way about what this might be. So I applaud that and I'm grateful that he's in this conversation because I, he's bringing so much to it and will continue to do so. So I I'm eager to continue uh, seeing his perspective evolve uh, and his thoughts continue to be shared with the community. It will be, will be better off for it. Uh, switching gears a little bit, we've had a, a recent, uh, I don't know if it should be called an op-ed, maybe an opinion piece written by Dr. Sean Kirkpatrick and published in Scientific American, uh, which was basically kind of a full-throated defense of the work that he did at Arrow. And uh, I would say he went on the offensive against the UFO community, uh, the whistleblower, David Grush, 
the stories that we've all heard uh, that David has alluded to, kind of lumping all of that material into a conspiracy-minded bucket that was a total distraction, both for his uh, department and also for Congress, that Congress has been duped by these stories as well, that this uh, sort of closely knit cabal of uh, of UFO enthusiasts over the last several decades have managed to uh, pull one over on everybody, and uh, none of these claims have checked out that, I think in his, to paraphrase what he said uh, in part of the article, that they were unwilling to look at uh, contrary facts that might explain some of their uh, you know, conclusions to what this might be. Um, he even cited uh, the work of Stephen Greenstreet, which I found to be particularly strange, uh, not necessarily a, a scientific source there. So a really weird uh, piece of uh, opinion work there, and it got a lot of flack, of course, in the community. I don't think anybody's sad to have seen him go, but you know, the one takeaway that I had, Darren, from all of that was that's the kind of person who, once they believe there's something there, then you, you we will know we have arrived. We have reached the point where it is commonly accepted in the world that this is a real thing. So as you know, I'm the eternal optimist. Once the Sean Kirkpatrick's of, of society can't... Uh, sort of brush this aside any longer, then that's my sign to know that it is a part of commonly accepted world worldview. So anyway, what were your takes on, on that, on that, uh, little bit of opinion work there from him? Well, like you say, full-throated to be sure, he didn't hold back at all. He was really on the one hand, trying to support his fellow workers from Arrow and spoke very highly of them and said they're world-class professionals, basically, but then painted the UFO community and anyone who has any kind of interest in there being a there there as being, like you say, conspiracy theorists nuts, basically. So these are terms that even Richard Dolan has talked about before, how the CIA coined this term conspiracy theorist as a way to basically create scoff and ridicule and undermine the careful investigation of a certain line of thinking. Now, the thing with Shankar Patrick that came out recently that is a new thing that wasn't really so much in the news when we have discussed him in the past was that some people are arguing perhaps we should be somewhat sympathetic to him because how much has he been set up to fail? How much has he had handlers who have, with kid gloves, decided what he can have access to and what not? So the real question now is not, I don't think, whether or not Arrow is a legitimate enterprise to really try to get to the bottom of this. I don't think it is. But the question is how much of the people involved, the players like Kirkpatrick, are in on the game, so to speak, are in on the fact that the game's already been mailed in kind of thing. I wanted to read a quote from Robe UAPTF that talked about some of the revelations that have come out in terms of how Arrow conducted its investigation. Quote, Arrow is a flypaper operation designed to shield a couple of very specific CIA, DOE, Air Force, and NGO operational recovery, reverse engineering, and advanced technology programs from would-be whistleblowers. They even have a website where would-be whistleblowers can blow away, but only about unclassified things. The limited interviews Arrow has conducted were conducted without recordings or transcriptions on purpose. Instead, the Aero staff took intentionally poor notes 
stripped out any information that would compromise these programs, then dumbed each interview down into a tepid MFR. These MFRs will be the source of Arrow's historical review, unquote. So you kind of get the picture there that basically even in the digital age, people are not even including the actual recordings or just notes. And then it's up to the Arrow people to decide how much is noteworthy and what's not. And that ends up being part of the final historical review. So on the surface, it's very hard to defend that. That doesn't look like a robust operation really trying to get to the bottom of it. And in a second, I can bring up what Chris Mellon has said in response to Kirkpatrick's claims and his dismissals. But what do you think about when you reflect on that opinion piece? Well, it, it's hard to square these two different realities. And I, I think this is the the challenge that we have right now with the lack of further uh, hard evidence, if you will. But we have claims from individuals like David Grush, uh, other individuals uh, who have come forward uh, to Arrow to provide their testimony, to provide uh, very detailed information as to their experiences and, and departments that were involved, people that they spoke with. And these are accounts that have happened decades ago in some instances. So very detailed information has been provided to Arrow to track down some of these claims. Uh, but according to Sean Kirkpatrick, like all of those are uh, sort of fantastical and lead to dead ends, or perhaps they weren't even investigated all that thoroughly at all because they just sort of fell into this bucket of kind of r ridiculous ideas. So it's it's uh, frustrating for me to to observe this this entire process and get to the heart of of the issue and discern what really took place here. And I and I, and I keep thinking back as well to and I forget exactly what time of the year it was, but it was fairly certain last year when Senator Gillibrand mentioned in a in a, in an interview that she wanted to get Dave Grush to sit down and talk to Dr. Shanker Patrick. So. It, the adult in me says, why did why weren't we able to make this happen? Why were we not able to make these two individuals sit together and share information and and document that by a third party, whether that be Senator Gillibrand or or someone else? Why did this not take place? And instead, what we have in this opinion piece is that Dave Grush never made an effort to contact our office. Uh, you know, if he really really cared, he would have tried to do so, and therefore, you know, he just wants to get out there and kind of make a name for himself and drum up public interest. And he wasn't all that serious about getting us the information that he really had. I mean, let's put aside the fact that there's an entire ICIG investigation and 40 whistleblowers that he brought to the ICIG. So there's there's clear evidence of a very detailed accounting of these programs that has occurred. But according to Dr. Kirkpatrick, it, it, it doesn't really amount to anything, mean anything. And I'm just frustrated as I would think this is the same type of frustration that I would, that I'm seeing in the Congress people as they talk about this, that we can't get these parties together for whatever reason. There are roadblocks that are continuing to be put up that prevent these parties from getting in the same room and hearing the, this particular information. And that should make us ask questions as to why that is. And I think that, that that's the takeaway I have here from all of this is that uh, there's not a concerted effort to really get to the heart of these claims. They are more comfortable just sort of dismissing them out of hand and, and not wanting to go there. 
And I, I got to say, if I were one of these whistleblowers that had already provided testimony to Arrow or to the ICIG, or if I were David Grush or you know somebody like David Grush who's thinking about coming forward, I would be even more uh, feeling more empowered to do so now, particularly if I had a, a you know a strong sense of patriotism and wanted to bring light to this area that seems to have been shrouded in secrecy for so long. So. I kind of wonder whether this is going to have a positive effect in really dampening the the interest. In some ways, I would argue it's kind of ramping the interest up from those who were really uh, dedicated and intent on on revealing the, the the secrets here. Absolutely, I had the same sense that if you're going to go out and publish this op-ed and ridicule anyone involved and sort of lump them all together in a kind of Project Blue Book kind of effort, then you're only going to stir up a hornet's nest. You're going to have the people with the actual information saying, that's it, I'm, I'm coming forward, come hell or high water, I'm going to find a way to do this, even if I'm putting myself at risk to some degree. Like you said, if nothing else, it prompts the question, why are these obvious mismatches not being reconciled? And like you say, he publishes this article, but then doesn't at all acknowledge the fact that there's this ICIG investigation involving multiple whistleblowers, dozens apparently. And if there was nothing to that, then why would the ICIG have said that Grush's claims are credible and urgent? It just doesn't make any sense. He doesn't even try to account for that. And like you say, when he's quoting people like Stephen Greenstreet, it says a lot about the quality, the caliber of the kind of rebuke he's putting forward. There have also been some notions come forward that, for instance, when it came to this notion that various groups were running illegal black programs to do with reverse engineering, apparently, and this is almost laughable, the notion is he would call up these programs and say, we've heard you've been doing something illegal. You're not doing anything like that, are you? No, of course not. Thank you. Thanks for confirming that. And it's pretty hilarious if that's the degree to which he's gone, because of course it just mails it in. He knows he's going to get that answer. This is what, again, Chris Mellon said about this, because again, there's discrepancies in the historical reflection that Kirkpatrick offers versus what some of the whistleblowers have been saying. So Chris Mellon said, quote, I was astonished by one of the central claims made by Dr. Sean Kirkpatrick in his recent article in Scientific American, blasting UAP, quote unquote, conspiracists, specifically his claim that as of the time of my departure, none, let me repeat, none of the conspiracy-minded whistleblowers in the public eye had elected to come to Arrow to provide their evidence quote-unquote, by the way, again, and statement for the record, despite numerous invitations. Then Mellon continues, I'm baffled because in an effort to assist his investigation, I introduced Dr. Kirkpatrick to the former director of the ATIP program, Lou Elizondo, as well as Dr. Eric Davis and Dr. Hal Putoff. Each of these prominent voices associated with the ATIP program spent hours briefing Dr. Kirkpatrick in a classified setting. None have received any feedback. Hopefully, the pending report to Congress on the alleged UAP recovery program will describe the specific claims made by these and dozens of other witnesses and what Arrow did to evaluate them, unquote. Now, again, even the first part of that quote where Mellon is quoting Kirkpatrick's article, the degree to which he just uses smears to actually address the issues rather than actually dealing with the, the actual evidence at hand is pretty telling. I think that's probably the most telling element of all is that it does not come across as a scientifically minded objective attempt to win people over with the 
quality of the, your persuasive argument based on a really objective, careful analysis. Instead, it seems like he uses these terms a lot like Stephen Greenstreet will, a lot like people on the inside trying to dismiss this will. They'll just use words and associations to try to dismiss people out of hand so that the evidence actually never gets considered. And that certainly makes you question not just Arrow's motives, but even his motives specifically. Right. And from the public's perspective, we aren't in a position to even evaluate these competing claims, right? So uh, what I would want to see ideally is him, if he's going to make a, a full-throated defense of his particular position, him put forward the claims and systematically go through them and say, you know, here's a claim from David Grush that there, there there's a secret reverse crash reversal engineering program. Here's what Arrow uncovered in our investigation of the of the programs that David Grush alluded to. This program was actually, you know, some sort of reverse engineering of a Russian satellite. This program was, a, I mean, we don't even have that to go off of. And so for uh, someone who has touted or tried to propose that this agency would be incredibly transparent with the public about what they're learning, uh, we're not given any kind of transparency as to why the claims that have been circulating about the UFO lore and the history, why, why those claims have no merit. I mean, how, how are we to evaluate if they have no merit? And I think that that ultimately is what we would need in order to walk away from this with a, a clearer sense of what is true and not true. Because if we don't get that, then we're going to continually be in this sort of partisan divide where you're going to have those of us on our side who think there is something to this. We're going to continue to believe that until we've been given convincing evidence that it doesn't exist. Or you're going to be the, the other side and they're going to take the position that they have taken, the consensus position that this is all just a bit of a fantasy and there's no there there and we can kind of move on and get, get back, back to our lives. So, you know, it's frustrating for me in that regard. Now, putting all that aside, um, we still have the very real situation that UAPs exist, and and no one is disputing that. Dr. Sean Kirkpatrick is not disputing that. Uh, we've learned that 2 to 5% of these uh, objects are, in fact, real and have been backed up with multiple sensor platforms and, and, and performing strange, you know, maneuvers over sensitive areas, uh, you know, where we should have control of those areas. So that should be very concerning. And uh, the, the Department of Defense's unclassified IG report was just published. And that was essentially their conclusion as well, that these objects should be taken very seriously, that they are real, that they do pose a threat to national security. And quite frankly, where we are as a country in collating and responding to these objects is inept. It's behind the curve. It's not where we should be. There's no centralized uh, you know, information collection that's happening. All the agencies aren't working together a lot like they should. I mean, some degree, its uh, conclusions were quite scathing in that regard. And that, that to me, is a, a black eye on the part of Arrow itself, that this hasn't occurred since that's part of its mandate, is to help us get our arms around this and, and, and kind of shepherd these agencies to work together and, and create a, sing, a singular way of collating this information and coming to conclusions. So the track record of the organization, the person who led the organization, these things don't appear to me as an outsider looking in to be very strong. Um, and instead, it seems to be very dismissive and very opaque. 
uh, with the most classic example of that opacity being they have a Twitter account that's, I think, boasted twice. Uh, so they're not very forthcoming with the American public. All that said, I think, like I said earlier, we're going to see folks in their frustration who are going to come out of the woodwork here uh, punching back to these statements. And I got to think, uh, if I were in Dr. Sean Kirkpatrick's shoes, I'm going to have egg on my face at some point uh, with some of the statements that, that he has made here. So uh, we shall see. That's certainly what I think we'll, we'll see in, in the next few months. Yeah, the last couple of things I'll say in it are, first of all, I agree with you, he will eventually have egg on his face, which kind of, again, prompts the question, why even go in that direction when it's not going to end well for you? A few things to make note of here, though. With that scathing report about what Arrow has failed to do in terms of creating a robust reporting system that spans across agencies so we can have this greater sense of national defense, the issue there is that I think there's a bit of a game being played because, in a way, Arrow doesn't want to produce that kind of robust cross-agency reporting mechanism because all it will do is demonstrate how real this is, that this is something absolutely prevalent in our skies that is not easily dismissible, not at all dismissible really, as the Chinese or the Russians or whatever. And so again, it's a game of obfuscation. Even when they get their hands slapped, they are doing it because they're buying time. They really don't want to do the work they've been tasked to do because it will end up with a conclusion that shines light directly back on the DOD again and the contractors. And so they're really trying to avoid that. Again, even Susan Goff has come forward and said that the only incidents that are ultimately reported on that Arrow has looked into are ones that are basically decided that that was something basically prosaic. That was, turns out it was a Chinese drone or whatever. So of course, we talked about this once before on a podcast episode last year sometime. What that ends up implying, this is where you've got NLP again, neurolinguistic programming, because if the only cases you ever ultimately discuss are the ones you've concluded were prosaic in nature, then the implication it leads people with, especially people who are lazily thinking about it, that eventually all of them will be prosaic. It's just a matter of doing that until, again, quoting Kirkpatrick here, it's somebody else's problem because I've explained it away. So, and even people have come forward recently and said that some of the investigation Arrow did has helped us identify a more advanced kind of spherical drone that China may have. And of course, people then start thinking, oh, so the orbs were all just Chinese drones? Again, it's not said that way, but the implication is there. It leads people down that pathway to think that way. And again, at the end of the day, it creates more obfuscation and ironically is about them avoiding the very tasks they've been tasked with trying to complete. Yeah, you don't want to be in a position to say, we don't know what it is and we kind of have no ability to deal with it either. And I think that's essentially where this would go. Uh, not a great position for the Department of Defense to be in. Uh, in other news, uh, you know, you and I have both seen the increased enthusiasm from congressional representatives in this particular topic and pursuing it further. Uh, Representative Representatives Burchett and Luna and Oslo have recently been in the news cycle about uh, sharing their interest in this topic. And we're hearing rumors of intent for more hearings and specifically even some field hearings which is really intriguing to me, just sort of showing up at certain places and uh, exercising their congressional authority to try to get some answers. You know, will they be able to get some answers? Will they be stonewalled in those locations? 
that will be interesting in and of itself. And I'm sure they're going to make a big stink if they aren't given the access that they're trying to seek. So I, I have uh, high hopes for that in the future in terms of you know, kind of public-facing efforts to get more information here. And then we've also heard uh, from Representative Burleson, who uh, provided a couple of great, great interviews recently, uh, him kind ex of expounding a little bit further on his own perspective, thinking this is extra-dimensional in nature. I think Luna used the term interdimensional following the briefing that they had. So that uh, theory is kind of getting more traction in the uh, kind of, I guess, public awareness. And, uh, you know, to some degree, because I always spend the latter half of the of the episode here talking about aspects of this, um, it, it's it's highlighting the fact that, you know, there are various theories that are that are, that are in the community. And when people first hear about it, they're going to be exposed to the leading thinkers and talkers on either, you know, social media or on their podcast platforms or on their mainstream uh, news channels who are espousing particular theories. And some of those people may have only had a very brief encounter with the material. And so that they, but they, but because of the way that they talk, you know, political talk, it sounds as if they've got a corner on what it actually might be. So we're entering into some interesting, I think, territory here as we're seeing the 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 scope of interest expand in 2024 what do you, what are your thoughts on that kind of as we're seeing it grow in interest this year well the first thing i would say reflects on a social media post i made a couple of weeks ago now on this matter where i said this term while used a lot recently basically is just a placeholder for quote unquote we don't understand what this is yet in other words it's more saying what we think it's not or not in the sense that we conventionally might think about it. So in other words, it's a way of trying to get people to think beyond extraterrestrial in terms of just flying here in a linear manner through a spaceship and that kind of thing. And of course, there's also religious history. Diana Pasolka and some other people have talked a lot about this, how there seems to be so much overlap with religious history and encounters had there and the way that they came into being in our reality. And again, same thing with the shamanism episode I did. There's a lot of overlap there. So we're really at this point where we're trying to come up with solutions that make sense of the data, knowing that the extraterrestrial hypothesis seems insufficient. Again, we've mentioned many times that that's exactly the conclusion that people like Jacques Vallée and J. Allen Hynek came to in the 70s. And it's interesting, too, because I recently read this quote from Gary Nolan, I think it would surprise some people because... Of course, if it's mainstream media, sometimes if it's even ufologists or ufologists creating content, the first thing they'll do is go and talk to astrophysicists, astronomers, and get their take on what they think this is and how it could be coming here, that kind of thing. But again, the question is, is this kind of being, this kind of intelligence that's interacting with us, really running hoops around us? Is it showing us that the way we think about the possibilities is woefully inadequate. I think, of course, it is. But this is what Gary Nolan had to say about this and the usual players people seek out to get clarification. He said, well, I always wonder why astronomers and astrophysicists are the go-to discussions on UAP. Their expertise is looking at things so far away that most of their conclusions, especially about life, can never be verified. Very safe because you can caveat the heck out of your statements. They will get quote-unquote signatures all is well and good, and I am excited about that. But asking an astrophysicist about unidentified aerial phenomena is like consulting a deep-sea marine biologist 
for advice on desert wildlife, unquote. Now, that was a great point because, again, the question is not what might they be like if they're eons away in some sort of other solar system or perhaps even some other galaxy, but the fact that they're here. So we have to deal with the actual interaction in this ecosystem and what that might say about who they are, especially when they can come in and out. That's the key aspect here is the blipping in and out, the way they can be here some of the time, but not all the time. The way that, again, they, it's quasi-physical in nature, where they have physical elements, as Jacques Vallée talked about, but there's a psychic element, too, where they seem to operate only in our minds alone, or at least in our fields of mentation, to use kind of a Bernardo Castro kind of phrase. So this is where we're at, and it's very interesting that amidst all the frustration that things are not moving faster, that there's obfuscation efforts from the usual players... Nevertheless, the fact that our Congress people are uttering words like interdimensional and extra-dimensional in 2024 is a pretty remarkable thing when you think about it. It really is. I think that, uh, and we've talked, touched on this before, that reality uh, has a, a track record of humbling us in our hubris, uh, that our scientific understanding in history has always been one of, we've got this all figured out. And uh, we can't possibly be surprised by new information. And then what happens? Well, new information enters the stage, and we, we're we're all shocked. Oh my gosh! Well, you're telling me that there, you know, there are microbes, and they can make us sick or whatnot. Like this changes every this changes everything. I thought we, you know, the, these things didn't even exist. And so I think what we're seeing take place here is essentially the same thing happening over and over again to us. We aren't learning our lesson in part because we don't live very long. Uh, you know, our generational knowledge kind of is, is lost, our wisdom is lost, and and we end up in the same situation over and over again. So I think that's what we're seeing here is uh, the the community, uh, the, the thinkers who are now willing to tackle this in public are going through the stages of grappling with theories of what about what it might be and uh, and really fumbling their way through it. It's it, but it's to be understood. It's to be expected, I would say. Um, you know, it, it, we're, it, it's a good sign in the sense that we've entered the stage of the conversation. I'll, I'll say this, I think in 2024, we've now entered the phase of the conversation where it's okay to talk about this in public spaces. It's okay to talk about this, you know, at, at the bar, at the coffee shop with, with, with your family, because it's being talked about in Congress, it's being talked about on the news, uh, people are interested. And now that that has happened... You're going to have folks who are basically planting a flag uh, on their territory in that conversation and say, well, yeah, okay, you're interested in it. Here's what it is. You know, I, I've written a lot of books on this, and I think this is what it is, and, and I can give you this compelling argument as to why that is. And it becomes attractive to people who have, have no other knowledge, no other experience as to what it might be. So we're seeing that, that, that happen, and I think there's a bit of... Um, I don't th think it's intentional, but sort of jockeying for d different attention uh, for you know, for for leading theories as to what it all what it all might mean. But you and I have talked about the fact that uh, for someone new to the subject, if they start searching about UFOs or they hear a podcast with Joe Rogan or whatever, you know, who are they going to start being introduced to? You know, what are some of the leading voices that are out there and what are their perspectives and how do those perspectives then influence that particular individual who's just trying to understand all of this information. So maybe we can walk through some of those leading voices 
if you're interested in doing that and kind of compare and contrast some of their perspectives. Um, I can give you a couple to start off with. Um, what about uh, the perspective of Danny Sheehan? You know, he's been making the rounds a lot lately and really put forth, put, putting forward this ET hypothesis with this new Paradigm Institute, and they're even introducing, you know, degree fields and in studying ETs. Uh, so it all seems to be about ET, much like maybe Stephen Greer would talk about it, uh, with very little, you know, nuance or or space for other other theories, other aspects of what the phenomenon might represent. So what do you think someone might take away from a, you know, kind of a Sheehan-esque perspective on the subject? Well, it's interesting because like you pointed to there, he's really bought in on using extraterrestrial as the preferred ways of talking about these beings and really doesn't hedge much from that at all. He doesn't really explain why it is that he's using that term whereas the Schur Amendment, which he's very well-versed in, used non-human intelligence. And while other people, both Congress people and other talking heads, prefer to use interdimensional and extra-dimensional, he keeps sticking with extraterrestrial. So the question is, why? Why does he justify that? And as you also pointed out, not only does he stick with that, but the New Paradigm Institute, which he's a part of, has now partnered with a university to offer master's level and PhD levels degrees in extraterrestrial studies, which again is all in on this one term. So that's interesting in itself. And then on top of that, in addition to the way he frames them and their origin source, he also talks pretty generally about it being a good thing, that it's about us joining this larger cosmic community in terms of space, right? We have so far existed just on this blue pearl of a planet. And of course, we exist in a universe, in a physical universe. And so we're about to meet other physical beings from this physical universe, which is interesting because Danny Sheehan will talk about the notion of something being ineffable. He will talk about his spiritual history, his Christian history. So he's bringing in notions that have been in the church about how we actually have powers as human beings, spiritual powers we're not aware of, and that this will actually help create kind of brotherhood and sisterhood with these other kinds of beings which again, at least raises questions about, are they only extraterrestrial then? Or are we really thinking about them and ourselves in too limited a way? I certainly think the latter is the case, and he's even hinting at that. So if I were him, I would not begin so much on this one term. But that's very interesting. I think that overarchingly, I have the same perspective as Danny in the sense that there is an overlap with spiritual history, that who we are as multidimensional beings that are just having a temporary finite existence of one amongst many is absolutely the truth. That's the case of the matter. And I think we will do better by knowing that. And it will, again, be a revolution, not just about who these others are, but fundamentally who we are. And it could fundamentally change the way we run our civilization because it's such a considerable shifting of perspective on who we are. So overall, I'm very, very thankful for Danny Sheehan. He's had an amazing record over the decades working on various causes. I'm really happy he's championed this one. I just think it's sometimes a bit peculiar and curious that he sticks to extraterrestrials so commonly. Mm -hmm. Well, and and we have so many other uh, sort of voices in the community as well. And, you know, thinking of some, you know, kind of counter voices to Sheehan who typically takes a very optimistic perspective on this ET situation, the Galactic Federation, it's all very positive sounding. 
uh, similar to how Stephen Greer might talk about that, and the you know the only the bad actors are the are are humans, and actually the, any any of these beings that are all, all the be- beings are benevolent. But you know to counter that narrative, we have folks like uh, I think here Lou Elizondo or or Tom DeLong or Jim Simivan who who are happy to talk up some of the negative aspects of the of these beings, the encounters, the the potential threat narrative that we've heard so much about to to get maybe Congress to take this very seriously because of their uh, their technological capability. Uh, so presenting a picture that's not exactly as rosy as what we hear from Danny Sheehan. And so, you know, if you're a person that might be predisposed to more of a, maybe a traditional uh, Hollywood sci-fi depiction of, of an alien being, you might really latch on to an Elizondo perspective, uh, you know, or a Sinodan perspective that we need to be careful that, you know, these beings may not have, you know, our best interest at heart. And so, you know, how does that set us up, uh, you know, in opposition to whatever that this might be? Um, that's a real challenge. I mean, I think all of these things highlight the challenge that we have before us in terms of how do we uh, carefully, methodically evaluate all of these different perspectives and and then present essentially kind of like a suspended perspective to the public. Because, because I think you and I would both agree that the people with a lot of the information don't actually know what it means. That they, they, they've been hoarding it in part because they don't have the answers. And so if we are to kind of open the doors a little bit further and allow people to, to, to get their hands on the information and come up with you know, some, some theories, you know, how do we kind of uh, inoculate ourselves against uh, quick conclusions that might be neat and tidy and say, oh, we've got this figured out, you know, they're, they're from Zeta Reticuli and we're, and we're done here. So how do we kind of move forward and navigate this uh, you know, kind of unfolding space so that we leave room for uh, new perspectives, n- novel ideas that, that that I think haven't necessarily been, you know, wi- widely adopted in the in the community. Well, I think you kind of hinted at it earlier when you talked about how we are in our hubris so quick to assume we've almost got everything worked out. We always have this sort of assumption that we're at the ninety eight percent level, and even though we look back in retrospect and say, "Well, our forefathers thought that as well," and look at that was prior to the quantum revolution where everything got undone and rewritten. And determinism and causal structures seem to just be actually a certain frame of reference in reality. And these much more bizarre fields of energy kind of like undergirded that. And then I think here too, the challenge is that even the way some of these people talk about these things is pretty imprecise. I've discussed before how, while I love Tom DeLonge and the effort he's made historically, he is pretty fast and loose with the way he talks about these things in a way that I think doesn't serve us so well. Even someone like Jim Semivan has that one famous quote that's all over the internet about there's another intelligence with us on this bleeping planet uh, to keep us in a PG level here. But of course, the interesting thing about that quote is that he says there's another intelligence singular Right, So it kind of, again, to a new person goes, oh, there's one intelligence here, and this guy seems pretty freaked out. As you pointed out before we started recording, he's got various talismans and various ways he tries to protect his family and his house from these invaders, which he has compared to the jinn of Islamic tradition. 
Again, I would just want to point out to people, what is the jinn other than a term to describe these beings that are doing these things? So really calling it something, we might as well call it the bagiwakis, doesn't get us any closer other than that's a new term we could use. So the jinn is just a term that was applied to describe these nefarious, apparently, interdimensional beings, again, meaning that they come in and come out kind of thing. And we get no further ahead by attaching to one particular way that that was framed or described in the past when it's the same thing as today, just with a different term. This goes to, again, the notion of interdimensional. We think we're further ahead than we actually are. That's just a placeholder for some kind of being we don't understand. But all this is to say, even with someone like Tom DeLong, he famously talked about going out into the desert in a tent and having a really terrifying experience in the middle of the night. And he kind of then gave people the impression that be careful what you wish for. Don't go seeking this stuff. It's pretty dark, some of it. And then, of course, that ties in with his argument that some of the military industrial complex has tried to protect us from these things, tried to fight the good fight while we're taking our kids to soccer games so that they can one day figure out how to handle this. Of course, many people think that's a pretty convenient narrative that he perhaps has been sold by some of these people in the military. And of course, he doesn't really address the fact that there's many, 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 many people in CE5 and heist movements going back to the Rama material in South America and whatnot that have had remarkably positive overarching experiences time and time and time and time again by following a certain kind of protocol, which again, we back to protocols and how that can invite a kind of non-ordinary state or non-ordinary realm kind of experience or a way that this quasi-physical kinds of reality can intersperse with our own. So again, what this points to is the fact that at the very least, I think the responsible thing to do is to say that these might be different kinds of beings and some of them are arising from different origin sources altogether from each other, which again gets to the real crux being here. We're just beginning to understand reality. We're not perfecting it. We're not putting the cherry on top. That's the degree of shock I think that we're in for. And I think certainly I was mentioning to you how people like Hal Putoff were part of a group back in 2005. This is mentioned in Jacques Vallée's Forbidden Science 5, where they basically were put in these different groups and tasked with whether or not they think humanity could handle disclosure. Would it be a net positive for humanity? And basically, according to Vallée's account of this, every single one of these subgroups that was broken out as part of this process, determined that it would do more harm than good, that humanity was not ready. Now, what I want to point out to people, that does not mean it's because it's bad or evil or dark or demons or jinn or whatever. It's because it's so overwhelming, because it so deconstructs what we think of as reality. And I mean everything. I mean our origins, life and death, everything, the nature of reality. And the conclusion was, therefore, that we have to give some serious thought and at least be a bit further along down the road in terms of a response to this before we just dump it out on people. So I just want to leave with that before I go back to you in terms of just because people decide that it's too early to share this or it's too damaging to share this doesn't mean it's inherently evil. It just means it's destabilizing. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I um, today I was able to listen to... Uh, I, I posted about this on X. Um, my friend David Haith had shared a video with me about uh, near-death experiencers and you know how it's reframing understanding of consciousness and you know, kind of pushing that frontier. And, and the accounts of these individuals 
were just incredibly compelling and moving uh, to me to, to, to listen to. And the point I want to get to here is that it took death, you know, literal death, for people to have a change of perspective and see reality as it, as it may be more accurately perceived. Uh, so that, you know, that, if that doesn't tell you the challenge that we're facing, I, I don't think you're paying attention because, you know, we, we come at this with, with the perspective that we're just going to slot whatever this is into our conventional way of looking at the world. We're going to, uh, take the technology and solve our energy crisis. We're going to, uh, you know, take the transportation and try and solve our transportation crisis. We're going to be able to do all these amazing things with the technology that we've already developed. We're just going to put it on steroids because we've we've now got this uh, alien technology. I mean, that is the the most bankrupt perspective on what this actually is. And and to me, the NDE is telling you that you know it's telling you that reality as we think we know it is so much different than what we perceive and those who've had those experiences almost uniformly come back with a much more profound sense of of the world of of other individuals of their of their actions in the world actions that they you know they understand have real consequences that it just it they enjoy life. They don't fear death anymore because they understand that it's just a transitional experience. And to me, that's the challenge that we face. So we have to, we're, we're, we're facing a reformation of our way of being. And that's really, really hard for us to accept because we've grown to like the way we do things. We like our comfort. We like the technology that we have. We just want more of it. Just give me more of it. And, uh, you know, this is not what that is. And so when, when, you know, you talk about the study groups and focus groups that have said, maybe we should not kind of let, let this out of the bottle. I think it speaks to that as well. We're just, we don't have the maturity to understand what this is. We're not ready for that. We can't get our own house in order. So why, why should we be willing to, uh, you know, kind of open up this and, and expose people to, I think kind of the the darkest aspects of who we are because we're not willing to face those things right now. You know, people don't want to face who they really are. And that that's really what this does. Yeah, it reminds me of a spiritual teacher I had years ago that I studied under that talked about why people sign up for spiritual programs. And usually they do it because they want to feel better. They want to feel better about their lives. They want to feel more pleasant. They want to feel happy, those kinds of things. I'm not saying those aren't good aims in themselves, but underlyingly, it's kind of like Neo getting the pill from Morpheus. The question is, do you want what's real or not? That's all I'm offering. And to your point, people here just want to solve problems to make our lives easier along the current trajectory we're on. So sure enough, we could solve climate change. We could solve energy, like you say. We could uh, find ways to get to plants quickly so we could mine them as well. Right, So it's more of the same, indeed. And of course, the crossover is in some ways that are quite startling, because it's not just that, as you pointed out, there's this remarkable overlap between people who have experienced these different kinds of contact modalities, whether it's seeing an apparition, seeing a former deceased loved one, seeing an apparent alien being, seeing a light being, seeing a UFO craft, having a near-death experience, having an out-of-body experience, all of these things 
seem to fundamentally change the way people think about reality. And what's ironic is that we want the UFO phenomenon to be some information that, that is delivered to us so we can have a better version of the reality track we're already on, which makes no sense in light of what people who actually had the experiences tell us about what it does to their view. And what we really should be doing is rather than just going, well, we could potentially solve energy crises, great. But much more than that is on the table. We could fundamentally change what we think life is about. We could fundamentally get rid of the notion of scarcity because we realize as eternal beings living through these various dreamscapes that aren't any more real than each other, there's nothing to be worried about in terms of scarcity, that that's a mentality. So that's fundamentally what changes is people's mentality, their relationship with reality and with each other. And now, of course, you've got things like, as I pointed out before, it's not just you've got gray aliens on the one hand and then other people having near-death experiences where they're seeing deceased loved ones, but sometimes gray aliens show up with your deceased loved ones. So apparently they have a perspective on reality where those divides have already been squashed, where those, those hard lines between what we assume are complete different domains of reality, if there's any domain afterlife to begin with, that's obliterated, that somehow this is about a different frame of reference that they can go back and forth between and even drag beings back and forth across these apparent hard lines as far as how we see them. So this is what's really in play here. It's a fundamental reshaping of what it means to be a sentient being and how we're related to each other and to the planet and to the surrounding community of which the physical cosmos is only one frame of reference in itself. So this is really what's in play, and this is where we should be going, I would hope. And I do think we have to be, and I'm sure you would agree, responsible about that, because if you dump too much too soon, it could be destabilizing. We should think about people's well-being, but not sell short the real potential that's on tap here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think about these beings and perhaps their perspective and how we're almost dragging them into our world, you know, <laughs> We, we want you to, I, I know you can do all that stuff and, you know, maybe it reveals something deeper about who we really are, who I really am and what I, I should be working on and thinking about, but I, I don't really want to deal with that right now. I'd rather you just uh, flip on the zero point energy microwave so that I don't have to, you know, get billed extra for my power bill this month. Uh, you know, that that's the sort of bankrupt thinking that, that we're talking about here. And, and I think it, you know, as you and I talked about yesterday, and we had a chance to to get get together over pizza. I mean, this represents the the real challenges that we've been talking about in terms of disclosure. You know that that you know how do you rolling this out in the way that I think most people think of it is not really what it is, and so you know to to kind of. Uh, trot this out in front of the world and say, you know, yeah, we're not alone. And, you know, here's some spacecraft and, you know, yada, yada. I mean, sure, we might make some uh, advances. Maybe we would even come together for a time and, and realize that we're one human family and have a, a bit of a kumbaya moment there. But I, I feel fairly confident in saying unless something else were to happen that would really challenge us to change our behavior, we're going to go back to our regular ways of interacting. We're going to still continue to see, you know, divides in our, in our, in our, in our uh, maps of the world, you know, where divides don't actually exist and divides in our maps of human beings where divides don't actually exist. 
you know, we're, we're going to continue to take that perspective on how we do things. And I think that's, um, it's very, very short-sighted. Um, so I, you know, in all of that conversation, I, I, you know, I'm led to think then what, and I know you spent some time thinking about this, you know, what is the role of these non-human intelligences in the dialogue with humanity to kind of maybe move us forward? You know, how, how do we move forward and, and what is their role in that, in that partnership? Is it just to continually confront us with the way reality truly is until we finally kind of submit to that and, and get, and kind of go, you know, okay, you got me, we're, we're going to, we're going to change our ways or are they a more proactive player? And, you know, you've touched on this before in various of, of your podcasts, but speak a little bit to the journey that they themselves might be on in terms of this conscious development and, and reality as they perceive it. Well, one of the things that Danny Sheehan has said, speaking of some of the people we've talked about, some of the main players, he's talked about how much older these civilizations are than ours. We're talking millions or billions of years. I think he's used the term billions with a B. And when you think about, yes, we've got a long way to go, but think about where we're at now compared to where we were 100 years ago. We tend to think about the change being largely around technology. We went from horse and buggy to spacecraft that have left the solar system kind of thing now. But that's still within the same frame of consciousness though, right? It's just more of the same basically. When you have the order of magnitude around millions and billions of years, suddenly consciousness itself, what it means to be comes into question. That fundamentally shifts. And this is again where our poverty of imagination comes into the fore here because we can't imagine what reality will be like three decades from now. This is what we talked about before in terms of part of the feedback Sean Kirkpatrick got from those people who were tasked with telling him what an advanced extraterrestrial signature might look like. They said, well, we don't even know what our technology is going to look like in three decades with the exponential growth in technology we're seeing. So how could we possibly know what a species that's thousands of years or hundreds of thousands of years or millions of years ahead of us? We just can't. We literally can't. It's not just within the scope of our imaginative capacity at this point. But the thing is, you know, when you think about these others, they are taking some of the glimpses we're having about us all being fractal impressions of source consciousness, and they've explored that to the fullest extent. They have, I would say, come full circle and recognized that this is source in a way, exploring itself and all the different permutations, as we've said many times on this podcast, which again is interesting because ancient Vedantic kind of thinking is also along those kinds of lines. And we're kind of coming full circle in that sense. And quantum mechanics seems to be suggesting that too. You know, another thing I think about here in terms of how people frame this and how we again want something that's easily digestible can I please have 300 pages that will tell me exactly what this is and how it's going to change us? I was thinking about another historical player, like Diana Pasalka, has put forth this new book that involves these different encounters and how people have been inspired by their interactions. But even that is a particular kind of encounter that's included in that book. And I heard that, for instance, after she had this recent interview on Joe Rogan, that that book has sold out, the hardcover copies have sold out. 
I'm guesses because a lot of people watching Joe Rogan go, finally, the answer, I'm going to gobble up that book and figure out what's going on. But to make my point here, even she has talked about, even her editor edited out some of the encounters that didn't fit with some of the others. So we are so conditioned to have an easy answer along a certain kind of thinking, a line of thinking, that even when it comes to encounters within one book, some are excluded because they're just too much of an outlier. But what does that say about our incessant need to dumb this down, to make it something palatable in one sitting and 300 pages? And how many people are reading that book thinking this is just one frame of one kind of origin source amongst many others? And that her main point about this might be the very same phenomenon that's been with us through religious history? Absolutely. But that's just the beginning. That's not the answer. So this, again, speaks to how we kind of are not really honest with ourselves. We want this open-ended inquiry. We want answers. But sometimes getting to the answers means exploring terrain that is vast and is, has as much depth to it as breadth that we have not even considered yet, let alone really tracked and navigated through. So in other words, what this should be is an invitation to an open-ended question, a series of inquiries that will carry us forward for this generation, the next generation, the next generation. I mean, the way that I look at it is that I do have a sense of how these things work and what's going on, but how we precisely map that onto our notions of reality, that remains an open question. You can say there seems to be this notion we talk about with different frequencies, and you can make these subtle tunings, and then suddenly there's these interspersing realities right amidst you. There's no need to go from Alpha Centauri to here, because ultimately, in a Vedantic sense, there is no space. There is no time. So if they know that and they have technology, quote unquote, that's operating at that level, then they could very well be Alpha Centaurans and still not have to travel here in spacecraft and therefore could still overcome kind of Bernardo's frustration with some of the typical sci-fi notions, which again speaks to the fact that we need to open the inquiry, think with imagination and try to embrace the ongoing questions that we will have where one question just begets another, but it's a more interesting question, right? I think they're about Zen again and how it's not so much about getting the right answer as it is about changing the line of inquiry and moving in a more fruitful kind of way that cracks open what you think you are and who you think you are. So I would encourage people to go on that journey rather than one where we get final answers anytime soon. And, and that journey is is far more uncomfortable. Um, and that's something that I think we're not accustomed to in the modern world is discomfort. Uh, we don't really want to be pushed out of our comfort zones to have to work too hard, to have to learn new things, to have to be challenged. Uh, it's And look, that applies to everyone. I'm not immune from that uh, myself at all. So that's the sort of I think, challenge in front of us. And that's what our traditions have been really asking of us too for the last, you know, many thousands of years that they've, they've, the, the people who spent the most time thinking about the human condition and reality as it is have been trying to tell us for a long time that our priorities are misplaced. The way that we think about things is misplaced. And, you know, but here we are and we continue to cling on to the things and, and try to get our our bag and you know whatever it is uh and you know come back to these nde experiences where they you know they're catapulted out of their body they are catapulted out of their things 
and they have this life review. They all talk about having this life review and they can literally experience any moment in their, in their life, not only from their perspective, but also from the other people's perspective, how they felt, how they were made to feel by the way that they had interacted with, with the individual. Uh, and then they come away from that NDE realizing the impact that their actions have on the world, on, on others, on themselves, and what is truly important in, in life. And it's not to, not to say that they come back and they all become, uh, you know, aesthetes and live, live in the desert in a cave. They don't, but they, they have a renewed perspective on how to behave in the world and how, how everything is interconnected. Um, that, that to me comes out very clearly. There's this, uh, sort of deep connection amongst all life and, and consciousness and, you know, if we're not willing, and I know, this is the frustrating thing for me, because it's, you know, we've lumped this into this new age way of thinking and, you know, oh, this is all, you know, kind of lovey-dovey stuff. But if that's reality, you know, if, if that, that, those are the consequences of our actions we have to come to face with once we move on from this mortal experience, you know, we're really kind of postponing the work that we're going to have to do. If we're not doing it now, it sounds like we're going to have to do it then. And, you know, the more work you do now, and I think you, you've touched on this quite a bit with your, with your podcasts, you know, the, the work we do now in our current experience better prepares us for what happens next. And, and next doesn't have to be after your life is over. Next can be when you meet a new person. Next can be when you have a new experience. What we do now, the work we do now on our perspective enhances all of those other experiences. And if we just put it off as if everything is just one more transaction or one more way to make me feel good, we're really not learning anything. We're just kind of running in place. And I think that that, that is the, uh, you know, to me, the sadness that I feel in so many perspectives about disclosure is it, it's just about this transactional experience. It's not really doing the harder, deeper work in terms of who should we be in the world? How do we change our behavior? How do we relate to one another? And are we, you know, kind of becoming a civilization that would be uh, positioned well to even interact with the the greater scope of, of conscious beings that might exist? That's a great point. And that relates to that question you asked me earlier about what do I think the various NHI are doing? I think much of their motivation, and again, the more ascendant ones, is exactly what you just described there, that it's more about getting us to rethink who we are and what our relationship to everything is, rather than just trying to accommodate us with some sort of new technology to make us follow on the same trajectory we're on now. And one of the things that's been definitely inspiring for me is to see how much our two podcasts, this one as well as Point of Convergence, has really helped to inspire people spiritually, energetically, get them to really rethink what it's all about. And I think that's really key. I think even when you think about some of the abduction experiences, I know this is somewhat controversial, but there's definitely an element in some of these encounters where shock seems involved not just for the sake of shock, but because it opens you up to new possibilities, to a degree of new possibility that really makes you fundamentally rethink who you are. And I think what all of this inquiry leads us towards, especially when we think about some of the implications like you talked about there with near-death experiences where we can effortlessly feel from the perspective of everyone else we interacted with as well as ourselves that 
that fundamentally should shift who we think we are and what this is all about. And the idea of this just being about UFOs and aliens is a really truncated, narrow way of seeing what this invitation involves. And in that sense, as we've said before, this is not just about going outward, exploring space and the cosmos, but it's as much about going inward. This is a journey of interiority and that absolutely everything is there as much as it's out there. So that's what I would encourage people to do, to really think about, like you said, not just what does this mean for reality, but what are my priorities going to be from here on out if that's the case? And again, if you look at it square in the face, the evidence that's facing us, like you say, the, the near-death experience literature is really, really compelling. Even kids who've had previous lives and remember that kind of thing and how they pick up where they left off and have to work through some of the same issues they were then, if that's the case, why wait? Why keep pursuing these things that are ultimately distractions from what really the enterprise is all about? So I think that's what we're about here is about the deeper meaning in all of this. And I think what this does is it puts us on a track for asking those questions and enjoying that journey and making the most of this incarnation, remembering it's just one of many. Mm-hmm. Yes, and then being open to that because it is, as you know, it's it's available to us even now. We just have to be open to receiving it. And I can't tell you the number of times where I've allowed myself to you know, dwell in that understanding and that accepting of, of how reality might actually be and then how surprised I have been in response to taking that perspective into the world. I have had a deeper connection with individuals that I relate with. Uh, I've had information that I've obtained that I would have not otherwise been able to obtain uh, because at, at this deeper level, we are truly connected and we have just tricked ourselves in a way to believing otherwise. And it's created the this illusion of separation and our divisions and, and, and many of the problems that, that we have now. And all we have to do is choose to no longer see that. And once we look at it from a different way, from a different vantage, uh, we'll be surprised and I think uh, in, in some ways rewarded with that perspective and it, it and it grows from there, as you well know. The more that you practice this, the more that it grows and you can walk into spaces, you can have you know new conversations with new people you've not met and you can make you can put this into practice and you'll you really will be surprised at what it what you receive in return just by being allowing yourself to be present to it. Um, so it's it's exciting work, and, and that's kind of part of the work that we're doing together on, on our shows and planning to do more of the, this year with retreats and things of that nature. So hopefully uh, we'll have chances to kind of do that with other individuals, uh, listeners of the show, and other folks who are on this journey with us. Uh, well, Darren, it's been great to uh, kind of get back in the saddle and um, to get back uh, you know in the community and, and having this conversation. Um, any parting thoughts before we close? Just that I am excited about this upcoming year, and I am looking forward to taking some of the virtual community that's existed over the last few years and actually doing more classes again, online classes. I'll be posting information about a new class that's coming up next week that people can register for. Like you mentioned, retreats I think will be really, really exciting. I've even been talking to a friend of mine about even bringing in some shamanic kind of tradition and journeying into that as well which again, this remarkable crossover between CE5 and Heist Protocols and these kinds of ways of encountering these non-ordinary state realities. 
So really looking forward to joining with the community and some of that in the flesh, as it were, and just looking forward to where it's going. And ultimately, like you said, not just for the sake of having some great experiences, although that is fun in itself, but so it actually changes who we are, changes our relationship with each other in reality, so that we could actually be a part of the solution in terms of where we're going as a civilization. I love that. Um, well, before I read our, our closing uh, benediction, I, I would like to sort of briefly mention why we why I do that at all. Why why do we have this benediction at the end of the show? And I think it's to kind of dovetail with what we've been talking about. It helps to create this shared space together with our listeners, and that's something that happens not just when you listen to this the first time, you know, the the day that it gets uh, you know pu- publicized, but it's you know whenever you happen to be listening to it, it could be years from now. We have a listener to the show. We're creating a space that kind of links this content, this conversation with wherever you happen to be, and it's mutual, it's it's interactive, and that's what it's meant to do. Um, so it's uh, it's something that I think has been really rewarding for me, and, and I hope it's been rewarding for those that have been on this journey with us. Uh, so with that being said, may the quality of our questions shaped by a desire for understanding enhance our journey of discovery. And may our travels broaden the sphere of our consciousness, reminding us that new discoveries beget new horizons. As always, adventure awaits. We'll see you next time on Liminal Frames.